we have reached the end of what I might call the main part of the book of Romans, the main section, which is that describing the gospel from chapter 1 through chapter 8. That's what Paul has been discussing. Chapters 9 through 11, Paul is going to discuss Israel and the Gentiles and how those two things relate to one another. That's where all those delightful verses about predestination that we all love to fight over so much are to be found. We won't be doing any fighting, but we will be talking about it. And then chapter 12 through 16 is practical matters, application. Uh, and, and I'm excited to get into that as well. But this really brings to a close th the main point of Romans, which is the gospel. And Paul builds to a dramatic conclusion at the end of this section. You can feel it as you read, and we've already been feeling some of it. And this is familiar territory for you. You've probably read this before, have someone read it to you at just the right time. As Paul, great biblical word, exults. He just rejoices and has that, that joy over what God has done. And to this point, we've looked at everything that the book of Romans has to teach about the gospel in great detail. Now, what can happen is as you go in small sections, you can start to lose the, the big picture and start to lose the flow. But I do not want that to happen. So today what we're going to do is we're going to take an opportunity as we go through these verses to review and rehearse everything that we've already learned about the gospel in the book of Romans so far. And it's going to build in that big celebratory passage that, that you all know so well. And I, I want to do this because... You know, I've been, one of my favorite teachers to listen to is a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's with the Lord now, but he had a, one, one message where he said, we pray for revival all the time. He said, but the Holy Spirit's job is to testify of Jesus and to communicate the truth of the Lord. So if we're not holding to the, the truth of the gospel as it's revealed in scripture, and we're then call on the Lord to bless it, he goes, that's not going to work. Because that's not what the Lord blesses. God doesn't bless false teaching. God doesn't bless errant doctrine or selfishness. So we're going to remind ourselves of what the word has said, because this is what the Lord has done for us and is how we live our lives. And I will say that if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, today needs to be your day. Because you're going to hear it. You've heard it a lot if you've been here for any length of time, but you're going to hear it again. And if you have been walking in such a way that you say, yes, I believe all that, but it hasn't really affected any area of your life, then today is your day to return and start getting it right as you know you ought to. So let's begin looking at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Another one of those verses that could be the only thing we look at all day, but we will keep going. So he draws together, what then shall we say to these things? What things? All the things he said so far. Since chapter 1, verse 18, when he began to lay out the gospel. What then shall we say? What's our reaction? What's the conclusion? Similar to Ecclesiastes when it says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. When it brings it to the end. And the first statement that he says is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's a, an interesting way to summarize the whole gospel, that God is for us. There's a song that we used to sing back in Virginia, and uh, one of the lines was, God is for us. And there was somebody in the church that had a problem with that. Because they say, people shouldn't be singing, God is for us. What they need to be realizing is they need to be on God's team. They need to be for God, not God being for us. And what if they're walking in sin and they say, well, God is for us. And, you know, that all sounds really spiritual. 
But you read Romans chapter 8, verse 31, he says, God is for us, meaning God is rooting for you. He's on your team. It's a joyful summary of God's disposition towards humanity. He is for us, which is surprising for a number of reasons. First of all, based on, on just logic. If we want to just have sound logic, where you want to say, well, the world couldn't have just blown up and existed, so something has to be up there that made all of this. And maybe I can assume that God is personal as well, because only personality can beget personality, so God is a person. And, and you know what? I believe also that if God is God, then he's omnibenevolent. He is all good, which means he cannot abide sin. He must judge sin. But then where do you go logically to say God is for us? Why in the world would we think that? Why would you think that God is for you or on your team or likes you just considering the nature of the universe? And there are some religions and some atheists and all that who want to argue exactly for that. So this is surprising to read that God is for us. But it's also surprising because of what we know biblically about the justice of God and the wrath of God towards sin. So let's remind ourselves, the first point of chapter 1 through 8 was that of condemnation. So chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. This is the first point of the Christian gospel, the bad news. Condemnation. We are all guilty because of sin, and we are destined for the wrath of God. Remember we, at the very beginning, we had to go through those chapters, and it just wasn't very pleasant and we're like, this isn't very much fun. And like, well, no, but it's so important to learn. Romans 1 verse 18, it said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the first thing. When we get out of the introduction, the first thing Paul says is, The wrath of God is revealed. Against what? Unrighteousness and ungodliness, the suppression of the truth. You must know this. This is sound doctrine. The posture of God towards sin is wrath, fierce anger, fierce heavenly anger. Because what is sin? Well, sin is, is anything that is not aligned with God's character. You know, sin is doing the wrong thing. If you want to use the little kid definition, it's still good. Doing something that's wrong. Why? Because sin is the cancer of reality. God didn't make it that way. Sin is anything that deviates from the way God made it. Anything that is not godly, that is not like God, we define as sin. It's rebellion against the Creator. And I know that we're very independent people. So you think, like, oh, so I've got to do everything that God says? Well, it's His world. And not only that, but God knows that if I made the world in accordance with my character, which is the only way He could have made it, Sin is not going to improve anything. Sin, my favorite definition, is anything that makes life worse. You've never lied and said, wow, I'm so glad I lied. You've never cheated. I'm so glad I cheated. You know, that, that, that outburst of anger where you know, I punched a hole in the wall, that was really where my life started to turn around for the better. Like, sin makes things worse. We were in the Garden of Eden. Sin came in, and here we are. So God cannot allow sin to run rampant in the world. In fact, even people that don't believe in God get very angry at God for not doing something about sin. 
But the, the disconnect there is they'd fail to realize, or if you have that attitude, why doesn't God do something about ISIS? Why doesn't God do something about these, these Chinese people doing this oppressive stuff? Well, okay, that's the right attitude to have. But do you realize that that also applies to you? What about you? Why doesn't God do something about you and your passive aggression that makes everybody walk on eggshells around your house? Why doesn't God do something about you and the way you bully people at work to get what you want? Why doesn't God do something about us? So those that want to stand up and moralize about how God is not a good God, they are only half right. They're on their way. They've got wrath. They've got this overwhelming sense of indignation against injustice, but they fail to realize that they are not in the just category. That's the terrible news. God is a good judge. He cannot allow unrighteous sinners to go free. If they caught the worst serial killer the world had ever known, big public trial, and he's brought in in chains, and everyone is outside the courthouse protesting with pictures of their loved ones that have been killed by this serial killer, and the judge said, well, I'm sure you had a really hard childhood, so you know what? You can go. Would we be celebrating what a great judge that is? No, the people would probably take that guy and string him up themselves. Well, he's not going to give us justice. We are. Good judges don't let bad people go free. So that's why God is full of wrath against unrighteousness. And here's the terrible news. As I said, every one of us has sinned. So every one of you is put in that category. You are that serial killer dragged before the, the judge. So well, that's, not, that's not fair. You say that we're all sinners? What is it with Christians always talking about how everybody's a sinner? I'll never forget this story. We were in Costa Rica with a missions trip, and I was, had taken a team of high schoolers, and so we were hanging out in like the courtyard of the hotel and having a good time, and this young woman about their age, maybe a little older, walks up, and, hey, can okay, I hang out with you guys? And she was from Canada, I think she was, so, hey, somebody speak in English. I'm going you know, to go hang out with them, and, well, of course, they get to, why are you all here? I said, well, we're, we're Christians. We're missionaries, and she goes, oh, well, you're not, you're not the, one of those crazy Christians that thinks everybody's a sinner or something, right? And she made this, like, aha, like, can you imagine kind of face. And 15 teenagers looked at me like, <laughs> like what do we say now? I'm like, well, yeah, of course we are. Oh, and she felt really bad. Like, she wasn't trying to, you know, fight or anything. But she said, I'm, I'm sorry. And I said, well, you don't think that everybody's perfect, do you? No, of course not. I said, well, then, yeah, everybody's done something wrong. Oh, okay. And that's really what it is, isn't it? Do you think you're perfect? Well, I'm not perfect. There you go. You've sinned. Only one time. It doesn't matter. You sinned. You are a sinner. It lives in you. It comes out of you. Haven't you noticed? 2022 is going to be the year. I'm not doing anything wrong ever again. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to eat clean for real this time. I'm going to the gym. I'm, I'm going to stop letting my boss walk all over me. And I'm going to respect my children. And, and then, you know, January 2nd rolls around. Well, you know, so much for that. And you throw it away. <laughs> Nobody made you do that. It comes out of you. That's what chapter 2 is all about. It's showing us that the law, any law, Moses' law or anybody else's law, shows us that we can't keep it. We are victimizers. We make victims of sin. And you might be a victim of sin, but you've perpetrated that same thing. You know, we, we feel bad for somebody that beats their kid if we find out that their parents beat them, but it doesn't make it okay, does it? Well, you needed to stop. That's what sin is. Therefore, we are all under the wrath of God. 
Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's standard is perfection. It can only ever be. God's not going to grade on a curve. Therefore, we are all destined for hell. Something that the book of Romans doesn't talk about so much, but you know who did? Jesus. Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Did you know that? He says that hell is a real place. It is utter separation from God, meaning there is no mitigating spiritual influence to help you come out of the darkness, to help you feel a little better about life. Jesus called it the outer darkness. He called it fiery torment where the worm does not die. Read Luke chapter 12. He talked about it a lot there. That's hell. Eternal isolation and pain and knowledgeable torment. You're not just going to disappear. No, that's not what the Bible says. Everlasting fire, it says. The lake of fire. It's another thing that people want to say. Oh, Christians always make up these weird things about hell being a place of fire. The Bible never says that. Yeah, it does. Jesus said that. Revelation says that. Because after death comes the judgment. And every sinner is going to be found guilty on that day. That when you die, it's not going to be the end of all your troubles and I can finally rest. No. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed to men once to die and then the judgment. If you are apart from Christ, life is as good as it gets. Because then you're going to stand before God and you're going to be, it says, naked and exposed before him to whom we must give an account. I hope the Holy Spirit presses that truth upon your heart. Romans 1 says that your unrighteousness suppresses the truth. I can't think about that. If I think about that, I'll go crazy. You might need to let yourself go a little crazy. Because that's real. That's the truth. The Holy Spirit is trying to convict you of judgment. That there is going to be a day when God is going to say, all right, what about this? What did you do on that day? What was that all about? And it's not going to fly with God and say, oh, come on, everybody does it. Because you're going to see God and his perfection and his holiness and his complete lack of flaw or sin. And you're not going to be able to appeal to some false standard. If you wait until death to think about eternity, you will have waited too long. That's the bad news. And there are, you are constantly finding people who want to, want to deal with the Bible. They want to be teachers of the law, but not knowing what they're teaching, as Paul would say in, in his letter to Timothy. Coming across people that want to, want to try and reclaim some of the value of the Christian religion. And what happens is the first place God brings them is right here to this place. We're all sinners. We're all destined for hell. No one can be good enough. And people run screaming when they come across that. But you've got to look it full on in the face. You're a sinner. You're not perfect. And that must be judged. You know it. Think about all the things you've done. If everybody knew everything, if we were to put right here a video of all the things you've ever done, do you think we'd let you keep coming to this, to this church? We would because of the grace, but we're not there yet. That's what's going to happen. You're going to stand before God and he's going to judge you in perfect righteousness. But I'm not just here to give bad news, right? Because we've already read in Romans 8.31 that God is for us. They say, what is that all about? I'm the serial killer and he's the good judge. And those who say, well, why didn't God do something about it? Well, the good news is that he did. Shall we read verse 32 and 34 together? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. These verses explain what God did for us and how we stand outside that condemnation right now. The second part of chapter 1 through 8 was justification. We stand condemned because of sin, but justification, we are now counted righteous because of Jesus Christ. It says there, God did not spare his own son. This was the plan of God from the beginning. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God had a plan before the foundations of the world to save those sinners. And it all centers and is built upon and cannot go beyond the person of Jesus Christ, his own son. Jesus of Nazareth was not just a man. He was the son of God made flesh. He was not conceived as men are conceived. The Holy Spirit overshadowed a virgin named Mary so that God became a man in her womb and was born on that first Christmas all those years ago. The Son of Man and the Son of God. Incarnate. Incarnate. In flesh. And he lived for 30 years just as we did and began to teach us the truth about God calling out religious hypocrisy, bringing good news to sinners, healing, casting out demons, until they took him and they nailed him to a cross in Jerusalem. The Romans and the Hebrews together crucified the Son of God. Because why? Because Romans 6.23 tells us that the penalty, the wages of sin, is death. What do I got to do to pay for my sin? You've got to die. Well, that doesn't help me very much. Then I'm sorry, I can't help you. But God says, I know what can help you. If I send my son to become a man and to die for you, and if he and his sinless sacrifice is applied to you, then his death can count for yours. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes what took place on that cross. It says, for our sake... God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great swap. God took your sin and put it upon Jesus and punished it at the cross and then took his righteousness and gave it to you. That's what happened on the cross. You know that, don't you? It wasn't just a tragic thing that happened to a good man. It wasn't just, can you believe what people did to Jesus? That's all in there. But ultimately, it was God pouring out the worst possible death upon his son to fill up the fullness of what needed to be done to pay for sin. Every time you read the gospel story, remember that it should have been you. It should have been you beaten and mocked while blindfolded. It should have been you stretched out and flayed open with the cat of nine tails. It should have been you nailed to a cross and exposed for everyone to see suffocating and bleeding out in front of everyone, all of your friends abandoning you, mocked even by the fellow prisoners that are being crucified alongside of you. 
That was the wrath of God. That was everything that sin deserved. That was everything that was waiting for us after death, after the judgment. God sent his son to become a man so that he could receive that kind of punishment. He hung on that cross and God poured out his wrath on Jesus, which is why as he hung there, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did I do to deserve this? And the answer is nothing. It's what you did. It's what you did and you did and I did. That was what Jesus bore on the cross. The only possible sacrifice. The Bible says one man cannot ransom another for the cost of his life is very great. You can't pay for somebody else because you've got to pay for yourself. But even if I was perfect, I could only pay for one person because I've only got one life. But Jesus was not just a man. He was the eternal, boundless Son of God. So that sacrifice could be applied not just to one person, but to all people. And that's what happened on that cross, which is why Jesus cried out also from the cross, It is finished! It is paid for! Everything that needed to be done in order to pay for sin has been done! You say, that's great, but how do I know? I'll tell you how I know. On the third day, as he lay in that tomb, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that is why the church exists. Do you know that? That is the reason we are here, to be witnesses. Witnesses of what? To carry the torch, to carry the light of the testimony that Jesus has risen from the dead. You and I stand in an unbroken chain that goes back to Peter and James and Paul and John, all the way down to you and me, to tell the world, Christ is risen. That's how we know. That's how we know that Jesus conquered death that he can conquer death, that death was beaten for us all. Everything has been paid. Somebody's got to say amen or something right about now. Come on. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. So then the question becomes, all right, how do I get a piece of that? That sounds wonderful. How do I get that? Because I need it. And I'll tell you, it does not happen automatically. There's some folks that want to tell you that. No, no, no. There's a call here. The way that you appropriate that sacrifice, that payment for sin, and the victory over death is through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.26 says, It was to show God's righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier. What does that mean? It means that God is just in punishing sin, but he's the justifier in pardoning those who what? Have faith in Jesus. God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. And now it presses upon you to believe that Jesus did, in fact, die for sins and rise again. First of all, you have to believe the story, not just as some weird symbolic. Yes, it's a good representation of what God. No, that this actually happened. We haven't got there yet, but Romans 10 says you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Why in your heart? You can say all sorts of things with your mouth. People say all kinds of things just to get by. You have to believe in your heart that he's been risen from the dead. And then you must turn, the word is repent, turn from your sins and bow the knee to Jesus and to God like countless sinners that came to Jesus who then said, what do I do? Like the Philippian jailer that fell at Paul's feet and said, what must I do? Like Paul himself on the road to Damascus, who said, Lord, what must I do? It's an abandonment of the old life. 
said, my life is not mine anymore. You're not partnering with God. You are becoming God's bondservant. Bowing the knee to him forever. But you know what happens in that moment, which is a moment of death. Jesus called it taking up your cross and being crucified with him. In that moment, God justifies you. He counts you righteous. Are you righteous? No, you're not. But God opens up the ledger of heaven and he finds your name and he erases all of the sin that was weighed against you. And in the righteousness column, he checks it off. How much righteousness? All that Jesus has, has been passed on to you. That's that book of life that the Bible talks about. The name that is written in the book of life. Romans 4.24 uses that, that accounting term. We've been counted righteous. That, that analogy of a ledger is not something I made up. That's the word, legizomai. It's an accountant writing it down. Positive, righteousness in the plus column, imputed to you by his grace. This is key. You may have heard other traditions that will tell you, now what God does is he saves you, and now it's your job to go out and get as much righteousness as you can, and, and then God will, will evaluate that on the last day. And if you don't pay it off, well, that's what purgatory is for. No way. The righteousness of Christ has been given to you. God looks at you, he doesn't see you anymore. He sees Jesus Christ. And that's the good news, that God is so for us that he gave up the most precious thing to him. And we read these verses now. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to step in and say, yeah, but do you know what she's done? He says, God is the one who justifies. God's going to be there like, this whole thing was my idea. What are you coming to me for? Trying to accuse my elect, my chosen ones. Who's to condemn? Jesus Christ has died and raised at the right hand of God. Jesus, it says, is interceding for you now. We've already read that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. It says right there, Jesus, who indeed is interceding for us. The book of Hebrews says that he liveth ever to make intercession for us. He's our high priest. Now, the old high priest used to take a sacrifice of a bull or a goat or a lamb. Jesus Christ once, not over and over again, once shed his blood, poured out on the mercy seat of heaven. He's your defense attorney. The name Satan means accuser, as in the prosecuting attorney. And here comes Jesus representing the defense, speaking to that one who's already justified and said, Father, we've already paid for this. My blood has covered this. And the Lord turns to Satan and says, get out of my courtroom. How dare you? Read Zechariah chapter 7. How dare you bring a charge against this one, this brand that I have plucked from the fire. By the shed blood of Jesus, you have a sacrifice. And everything that racks your brain when you're trying to sleep at night as you remember all the horrible things you've done that tells you you deserve hell and you deserve death. If you are in Christ, the blood of Jesus has covered that. Is Jesus' blood not enough to pay for your sins? Well, what made you so special? You're not that special. It, that's a good thing. It's to your advantage. It means that the blood of Jesus can cover your sins. That's the only way to be saved. Only way is by the grace of God. Grace means a gift. God gives it to you. You don't earn it. You couldn't earn it. God goes, these people can't earn salvation. So I'll let Jesus die for them and then make them earn it. No, no then Jesus wouldn't have died for anybody and it would have been a waste. But you receive that gift of grace through faith, through belief, through commitment of the heart to God. 
Ephesians 2, you all know it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you know, people who think they get to heaven by works do an awful lot of boasting, don't they? Sometimes they won't come out and say it, but they boast, like they do reverse boasting by pointing fingers at everybody that doesn't do it as well as they do. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can only receive it. And I'm telling you, you must receive it or you'll have to pay for it yourself. That's not anything that I'm interested in doing. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul now begins to exult in our security as Christians, scoffing at the terrible things that we go through. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago, about not giving your pain power over you? Paul just like hears about those things and goes, come on, seriously? That is going to have anything to do with threatening my salvation? But in verse 36, he quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22, if you want to write that in the margin, Psalm 44, 22. And what that psalm is about is, Lord, we are your people, but we're suffering for it. He's affirming that if you are going to bear the name of Jesus, you are going to suffer for the name of Christ. Jesus said that, in this world you will have trouble. Write that on your, on your wall. Cross-stitch it on a pillow. Put it on the, on the couch so you never forget it. Maybe on the flip side, you can say, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But you've got to remember, Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Beware when all men speak well of you. Look out, because that's what the false prophets got. Everybody loving them. The real prophets, they sawed them in half. So we say things like, well, the world doesn't like us. We must be doing something wrong. Well, or you're doing it exactly right. The third part of chapter 1 through 8 concerns sanctification. So bad news, condemnation. Everyone is destined for hell because of the wrath of God against sin. Step two, justification. Good news. God has done everything necessary to pay for that sin in Christ Jesus on the cross. Part three, sanctification. The ongoing process of holiness and spiritual growth by the Holy Spirit. Now, why do we associate this with suffering? Because if you are in Jesus, everything you go through in life, whether it's distress or persecution or tribulation or sword, serves the purpose of shaping you into the image of Christ. Doesn't matter what it is. It's all used for that purpose. Primarily, sanctification means you need to stop sinning because you no longer have to. To be in the image of Christ means not to sin, to be holy and righteous as he is holy and righteous. Is that what's going to save you? No. But now that you've been saved, it's time to make a change. Romans 6.6 6 told us, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. You do not have to keep sinning as a Christian. God has given you that freedom. And there is a responsibility that comes upon you in that moment. Because the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in you. You might say, well, listen, I couldn't stop sinning before. What's going to make such a big difference now? There's a spiritual change that has taken place in you if you've been saved. The Holy Spirit of God 
He was with you. He was the one convicting you, warning you, drawing you to salvation, convincing you that these things were true, steering you towards Jesus. And in that moment, when you finally say yes, he comes in you to dwell within you. Jesus said it in John 14, 7. He was with you and he shall be in you. This is the process, or not the process, the moment of regeneration where he activates your spirit. We've used the, the analogy of a defibrillator. He shocks your soul like you shock a heart and it starts to live again. It was dead in Christ or it was dead apart from Christ and now it's alive in Christ. So now you have the ability by the Spirit who dwells in you, making you a holy temple of God. So now it's time to stop sinning. And that does not mean you just sort of drift through life and slowly these things slough off. No, the Bible describes it as a fight as a battle, as a race. Paul loves to use the wrestling match analogy. Right? He lived in Greco-Roman society. He knew about Greco-Roman wrestling. He's like, you know what? This is just like the fight against sin. Because you're still in the flesh, the body of flesh. Your soul has died and risen again with Christ. Your body has not yet died and risen again, which means it's still corrupt and full of sin. Haven't you noticed that it doesn't matter what you, whether you want to or not, it feels like your body is tugging you along to do the things you don't want to do? That's the struggle against the flesh. We're waiting for the resurrection of the body, but in the meantime, we've got to fight. It's simply not the case. Hear me now. It is not the case that to be saved and to be a Christian means you can live however you want. Oh, God will sort you out. God will sort you out, but God's told us how. And the way he said he's going to do it is, I'm going to assist you in your fight against sin. In fact, there's a, it's in Hebrews. And he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So get over yourselves. It's like, well, it's so hard. It's so difficult. It's so painful. He goes, yeah, but nobody's trying to cut your head off. Nobody's holding your, your children hostage with a gun to their head and saying, worship Caesar. We're going to execute your children. He says, so, you know, y'all can just buck up. That's when he says, strengthen your, your weary knees and, and lift your arms because you know what? You've got Christ. But it is a struggle. There are those that think, you know what? I'm saved, right? Once saved, always saved. So off I go. I'm going to go and do everything that I wanted to do and, and chase down every iniquity and be a prodigal son. But don't worry. God's got me. And God goes, I am not working that out in you. You're going to tell me that somebody regenerated whose soul has come to life, somebody who's been filled with the Spirit of God, is then going to say, thanks, Jesus, I'm going to go sin some more. That person is deceived. Deceived. To begin the race and quit. Remember what Jesus said to that one guy who said, let me come follow you, but let me first go say goodbye to my family. He says, if you're going to start plowing and keep looking back, you're going to be useless in the kingdom of God. Jesus told somebody, I prefer you didn't start then get going and, and quit. He told the Laodicean church in Revelation, he said, you're lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're good for nothing. Lukewarm water is not good for anything. Have you noticed? You can't boil anything in it, right? You can't cool anything off. So he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus says, lukewarm Christians make me sick. Halfway Christians make me throw up. They say, that's really vulgar. That's what Jesus said. In Revelation chapter 3, you've got to struggle and strive against your flesh. And again, one of these other pseudo-spiritual things we say, you shouldn't have to strive. 
You shouldn't have to fight. You shouldn't have to do this. Okay, look, in your flesh, yeah, you don't strive. But Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I beat my body into submission to make it obey Christ. Because I know that I'm saved by grace, but I also know that I'm living in this body, and I refuse to let this body be a representative of anything other than Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.17 says, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And in Romans chapter 7, we get this long description of somebody who has been giving into the flesh, not the spirit. And he says, I, I can't even do the things that I want to do. I don't like this, but I keep doing it. And I really like this, and I can't get going. And he laments, who's going to deliver me? Well, Christ Jesus. Here's the good news. You can overcome. You can win. You will see victory in Jesus. But you can't just expect it to happen. We, we do this with all sorts of things. You know, your kid is in sports, and he wants to be a great athlete, but he never, never exercises. You know, he drinks sodas all day long and sits in front of the TV. He's like, it's not just going to happen, kid. You know, the guy that shows up at work, and he's like, I'm going to be promoted. I'm going to be boss, and, you know, shows up late and leaves early and slacks off while he's there. Like, kid, it's not just going to happen. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought God does everything. Yes, and God told you, get up and fight. Get up and struggle. Get up and claim victory in Jesus. Here's the good news. There's no threshold or standard that you have to reach before you get to heaven. But God goes, I just set you free. So walk in freedom. Renounce that old slave master that was telling you what to do. You owe your flesh nothing. That's the call to sanctification. To be as righteous as he is. To put to death the sin that is in you. Everybody just take a minute. Just take a minute and think in your own heart. What is the one thing, that one sin, that one area of your flesh you just can't shake? You might have it under control. You might have it like suppressed and shoved into a corner, but it just breaks your heart every time you think about it. And you, you just panic at the thought of anybody finding out. Did you know that God has given you victory over that? And that thing that is so intimidating to you, Jesus says, that's where I want to take the fight. That's where I want to suit up and go to battle. You can have victory because you have the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwelling in you. If he was able to make Jesus Christ incarnate and raise him from the dead, is there anything he can't do? And if I might back up a verse, will God not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? There's a fight that we fight, but you can win. We've been liberated from the penalty of sin and day by day, sanctification, you're being freed from the power of sin. I tried, and then this, I, I tried for a whole week. Oh, my friend, this is decades. This is your whole life. This is day by day standing up and saying, Jesus Christ gets this day. But because you've already been saved and justified, when you fail, you don't spiral off, oh, no, what's happening to me? You say, sorry, Lord, it's my flesh. And God goes, I know it's your flesh. Let's get up tomorrow's fight again. Amen. Paul said in Romans 7, it is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. Ooh, grab hold of that, Christian. You sin. That's what Satan will do. You don't deserve any of this. How dare you show your face at that place? And you go, that's not me. That's my sinful body. A quick resurrection will clear all this up. Because it's not dependent upon me to be saved. It's dependent on Jesus Christ. And if every time you sin, if every time you sin, it causes you to get on your knees and get closer to Jesus, Satan's going to call that tempting demon in for a meeting and say, would you stop it? 
Every time you make a sin, every time you make her sin, she grows as a believer and she grows in her understanding of grace and she comes back stronger the next day. Leave her alone. <laughs> Leave him alone. And then you've got other battles to fight like apathy and being lazy and being prideful. But we've been liberated from the penalty of sin and you can be liberated today from the power of sin. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he says in verse 35, what? Distress, persecution, sword, tribulation. Is any of that going to separate us? And then in verse 37, he gives you the answer. No. We are more than conquerors. That word more than conquerors is just one in Greek. It's huper nikao. Huper is where we get our word hyper. If something is hyper, it's like extra, right? And nikao is, comes from the word Nike. You've seen it on your shoes and your jackets and everything. It means victory. Hyper victors. Not just the winners, but the super winners. More than winners. Above victors in Christ Jesus. Paul's looking forward to the victory that we will enjoy in Christ at the end of its, this life with all the trials that we face. And he points to all these external things, death and life and angels and demons, those words for rulers and powers, principalities and powers. These are references to ranks of demonic forces as we see in Ephesians. The fourth part of Romans 1 through 8 is glorification. We will one day be resurrected and glorified with Christ. Justification is past. Sanctification is present. Glorification is future. Either you will return from heaven with Jesus Christ or rise to meet him in the air at the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's glorification. When a Christian dies, the word tells us their soul is taken to heaven to be with Christ, to be comforted, and to rest. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 tells us that to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. But the word tells us this is an incomplete state. Being in heaven with Christ now is called being unclothed. Your soul was never meant to be separated from your body. God didn't make you that way. So we're waiting. You're resting. You're being comforted in Christ. I'm sure we're learning new things about the Lord and engaging in prayer for those that are still on this earth. I wonder, when we get to heaven, are we going to pray, Lord, come back right now? Or are we going to say, Lord, just a little bit longer? Somebody else could still get saved. I wonder. But after the rapture, the body will be glorified. So that all those saints in heaven are going to receive their bodies. And those that are still alive are going to ascend in their bodies. They will not all sleep. We're not all going to die. And those bodies will be glorified. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us we'll face the judgment seat of Christ. 
You say, wait a minute, I thought we weren't going to judgment. Oh, this is a different kind of judgment. There's, there's a judge that's going to decide whether you're guilty or innocent. We've got Olympics going on right now. There are judges there too. What are they doing? They're determining who gets gold, silver, and bronze. Nobody gets executed if you do poorly at the Olympics. Unless you come from a really nasty country, I suppose. But that's the kind of thing we're going to face. It says that we may be re receive what is due for what has been done in the body. And your life will be measured either wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. Whatever has been built in that sanctification process for Jesus will be given as a reward to you. And everything that was done apart from Christ, what I was just talking a minute ago, just kind of floating through life and not taking victory, it's going to burn up. But you'll still be saved, it tells us there. And we shall all be changed. Your body will no longer be corrupted by sin. How will it feel to be able to live and not feel that wicked tug of sin at the back of your mind, causing you to take it too far? To be able to sing and worship and close your eyes and raise your hands without Satan whispering, man, you're so spiritual. Look at you. Everybody's staring at you. They're not as spiritual as you are. Be able to talk somebody without temptation coming into your mind, some sort of sexual temptation. To be able to get excited and passionate for the things of God without it denigrating into rage and, and filthy wrath and anger at people. And you'll be able to just live with no sin. Instead, you'll be glorified as Christ was. When John saw the glorified Christ at the beginning of Revelation, he fell down on his face. This was his buddy. He was so comfortable with Jesus. He said John leaned against Jesus' breast at supper. So comfortable, he'd be like, hey, Jesus, which one is it? Which one of them is going to betray you? But he saw Jesus in his glorified state, and John fell on his face. And you know, the Bible says that we're going to be glorified too. Only God gets glory. Okay, God said you will be glorified with him. 2 Peter 1 verse 4 says that we will be partakers of the divine nature. I'm not quite sure what that means. Revelation 3.21, Jesus said, I will grant to you to sit with me on my throne. Not quite sure what that one means either. 1 John 3 verse 2 tells us, we do not know yet what we will be. For we will see him as he is. Now, nobody can see God and live, but the Bible says we will see God and live. So John the Apostle goes, I don't know what that means. Can you even call us human anymore? It is not revealed what we will be. More than all that, though, your relationship with God will reach its fruition. It'll be consummated when you receive every wonderful promise that God has ever made to you. Romans 8, 16 and 17 the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffer with him, sanctification, so that you may be glorified with him, glorification. You say, glorified with him? Hey, Jesus will always be first, but the things God has given us are so wonderful because they are only possible for us in Christ. You recognize you have Christ's righteousness now. So is it so far-fetched that we'll share his glory too? We'll share his throne? Share his nature? These are things that the word tells us. This is what we're looking forward to. God has adopted us as his children. Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of the father, but you and me, the adopted sons and daughters of God. You have a seat at his table alongside Jesus Christ. There's nothing 
that can stop God from accomplishing what he has purposed for us. Neither death nor life. So not the way you die, not the way you live. Not angels. No angel or demon is going to show up and keep you out of heaven. Enough cartoons already with St. Peter kicking people out of heaven. He doesn't have that authority. Can Peter kick Jesus out of heaven? No. Well, you have his righteousness. So if Jesus belongs there, then so do you if you are in Christ. Nor things present, nor things to come. There's not going to be some new evil invention that's going to keep saints out of heaven. Nothing to come, nothing present. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a reversal. We've gone from being thoroughly condemned, destined for hell, to justified in Christ, with a new lease on life as we go through sanctification and the hope of eternal glory waiting for us. Make no mistake about it. This is only available through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So let's ask a final question here. Why would God do this? Why would God be for us as we read? Why would God send his son to die for us? Why would God put up with our shortcomings for our whole life as he tries to bring us incrementally closer to the actual righteousness of Christ? Why would God promise us such glories as we have just read? Because John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Not perish, justification. Everlasting life, glorification. He gave his only son to make that possible. Why? For God so loved the world. It was love. It was love for you. Love for me that motivated God to reach down and pay such a price. And it is not just love like we have. We can have impotent love. We can desire to do something for somebody, and yet we just can't. You see your, your child there sick, and you wish with all that is in you that you could take that on yourself. You've been to a funeral, and you've wished, Lord, couldn't that have been me? It's impotent love, as admirable as it may be. God's love is all-powerful. It is omnipotent love. He had the power and the glory to do something about it. Nothing can ever separate us. Look at that. We read about angels and tragedies and sufferings and persecutions to separate us from what? From the love of God, from the love of Christ. It is love that has saved you. God didn't say, I can't let the devil get away with this. I'm going to get these people back and then push them off into a corner of heaven. So yeah, I saved you, but it wasn't about you. There are even some, some Christian people that try to theologize the love of God away from the center of salvation. People say things, and I'm trying to be cautious because these are godly people, but I do want to have this said. Dear friend of mine, one of his favorite phrases, he says, the only thing that motivates God is his own glory. Well, it tells me that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Is the glory of God important? Yes. But the glory of God is expressed in his love for you and me. Amen. The love of God that was sacrificial, willing to take the penalty upon himself. And did. It wasn't just talk. It wasn't just, don't worry, I'll take care of it. He did. 
Jesus Christ said, Lord, I don't want to be crucified because who would? But he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But the Lord said, no, there's no other way. Then it says Jesus took that cup and he drank it to the dregs, every last drop. He would not even take the opportunities they had to alleviate his, his pain during the cross so that he could say, it is finished. It's been fully paid. The Lord loves you so much. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for you to get right before he died for you. He reached out to save you first. And God has poured out his love and his grace on everybody, even on those that are not going to finally receive it. He goes, I know most people won't receive this, but I'm going to die for them anyway, that I can bring in as many as possible. The love of God revealed for you. God saw you in all your sin and all your wickedness, and he loved you for it. God sees your life, all the little things that nobody else cares about, all the little daily concerns you go through, all the little interests you have, and God cares. He sees all of that in his heart fills with divine, everlasting, personal love for you. It's not just as a, a love, as I've said before, for the church. Jesus Christ said he's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. He knows your name. He cares about you as an individual. When he stopped Paul on the road to Damascus, he didn't say, how dare you touch my church? He said, Saul, call him by name. Why are you doing this? You love my law. You love my truth. So why would you hunt my people down? They were praying, Lord, strike Paul. Get rid of him. He's trying to kill us. And God goes, I got a better idea. I love Paul with an everlasting love. Jesus accepted Paul long before the church did. They didn't want him. They were scared. They probably were bitter against him because he dragged my family away. My wife was killed because of you. Stephen was killed because of you and people like you. I don't want him here. I don't care what James and Peter and John have to say. I don't care what Barnabas says. Send him to Antioch because I don't want him here. But the Lord showed his love for Paul, his love for the Gentiles, his love for you and for me. The love of God is constantly reaching out. The love of God is reaching out right now. And as I said, this is the one thing that you can't get there logically. I think God loves us. Why? What's so great about us? We wreck things. There are those in the world that get this, right? We've made such a mess of this planet. Probably best if most of us just died off. But don't you know that Jesus loves you? He loves you so much. If you've fallen away from these things, it's time to come back. Here's what the enemy will whisper in your ear. Yeah, but you've gone too far. You, you said your prayer when you were 12, 13, 14, but you've lived 20 years separated from God. It's too late. You had your chance and you missed it. Is that what the Bible says? If the thief on the cross never had a chance to be baptized or discipled or learn about anything, was able to be told by Jesus Christ, you'll be with me in paradise today, you certainly have the love of God waiting for you. You wouldn't be hearing this message right now if the Lord didn't love you with an everlasting love calling you back to himself. When the prodigal son returned, he had lost every blessing that his father had given him, but the father ran and embraced him. That's what's waiting for you when you return. All of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. And if you've never believed, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've gone to church your whole life, but nobody's ever explained grace to you. 
And that happens because there are several of you in this room that came to me and said, nobody ever taught me grace until I came here. They taught me I had to earn my salvation, that I had to live up to the cross, that I had to grab hold of it, that if I did this or that, then I would wreck the whole thing. I'm telling you that it is by grace alone. It's only ever been a gift that you receive by faith. If you've never heard that, today can be your day. You've never trusted in Christ alone. You're trusting in other things to save you. You know what God will do is he'll slowly break those things off of your life until you have nothing left. That's why you have so many deathbed conversions. Because it takes people that long to get completely alone with God and say, Lord, it's just got to be you. And then they have this, those, as we've all seen, those short couple days of inexpressible joy. Because they finally let go of all of that. But you don't have to wait till then. You can do it today. I don't know if I know enough. Do you know that Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead? That's enough. What did, the, what did the blind man say? All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. That's all it takes. Trust in anything else for salvation and you are outside of the Lord's hope. Let go. That's a fearful thing. It's death. It's everything that you've believed and, and lived for and stood for and worked for being crucified at the cross and you walking away with nothing but the grace of God. But that's the only thing you can take with you out of this life anyway, isn't it? Today needs to be either your day of salvation or the next step in your sanctification when you realize, all right, I'm struggling, but this is not, this is not determining whether or not I'm going to get to go to heaven. That struggle was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's long over. This is just about walking in obedience to Jesus Christ. Come take his love. Receive his spirit. Fix your eyes on the hope of glory that's coming because there's nothing that can separate us. God is for you. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus if you have put your faith in him. If not, then you are on the outside. But the door is open and we're welcoming you in just like Jesus has been doing since the very beginning. This was God's plan. We are heralds of that truth and the world needs to know.